This is a record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we remember the fact that your word is such a precious thing to have. It is so important that down through the ages, uh, men and women have given their lives just to be able to possess your word in our language, that we might be able to understand what you have to say to us, what you have revealed to us, that we may be able to honor you and glorify you with our lives. Father, this is not something to be taken lightly because this is your word. And even though for us we have tremendous freedom, and we have the, each have the ability to not only own one copy of Scripture, but in many cases we have uh, many different Bibles, and we have such easy access to your word that somehow we forget the significance of that and that uh, how important it is in times of difficulty, in times of chaos, in times of uncertainty, that we have your word to turn to, to give us stability, to give us confidence, and to focus our attention not on the here and now, but on the fact that this is a training ground and that you have saved us for a purpose, and that purpose is not just in this life, but it looks forward to, anticipates the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in which he will establish his kingdom, and that we as the members of the Bride of Christ, the church, will rule and reign with him in that future time. And today is a time to prepare us, to prepare us spiritually, for that time when we will be part of his ruling cadre in the, in the kingdom. And, Father, we pray that as we study your word today that you would challenge us with these truths and that we may learn to live uh, today in light of your destiny for us in the future. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our study in Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and we are down to verse 12, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 begins to shift into a second area of thinking that has come into the mind of the Apostle Paul as he is addressing uh, the congregation. We have pointed out that he starts off with this first of a reminder of his prayer in verses 3 through 8, and then he goes back to that idea in verse 9, talking about what he is praying for on a regular, consistent basis for this congregation. And I continue to remind you that 
as we study the prayers of the Bible, we learn how to pray and we learn what we should be praying for, what our priorities should be uh, in prayer. And so as we come to this section, verse 9 through 11, I will uh, read again so that we're reminded of the context. For this reason, Paul says, we also, speaking of himself and Timothy, since the days we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. Now that's his main thought that he is talking to them about what he is praying for, for that congregation and for the individuals in that congregation. As I was reflecting on this again the last couple of days, it reminds me that uh, as we pray, pray for ourselves, pray for others, we ought to be praying these same things, that we should be filled with the knowledge of his will. This doesn't happen just by osmosis. It doesn't happen just because you... Uh, have some, uh, uh, have an iPod or some other, uh, audio device that has a thousand or two thousand hours worth of good Bible teaching on it, uh, or that you have various uh, files and notebooks loaded with the Word of God. If you're not listening to it and assimilating it into your thinking, then you, the knowledge is not becoming part of you. And I pointed out that this knowledge, the word for knowledge in the Greek that he uses here is a epinosis, which means a, a full knowledge. It's a knowledge that it goes beyond just uh, an academic knowledge or academic understanding that this is something the Bible teaches, but that this is something that we believe and that we want to make a part of our life. And we can only do that, as this passage points out, under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in this passage, but the emphasis throughout this passage is that this cannot be done on our own power. It can only be done under the power of God. When we look at other passages, it informs us that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is the real energizer. He's the one who empowers us in the spiritual life. Passages like Galatians 5.16, we are to walk by means of the Holy Spirit, that he is the one who empowers us. So, Paul prays that we could be filled with the knowledge of his will, and that word for filling is the same word that is used in Ephesians 5.18 for the filling by means of the Spirit. The Spirit fills us with the knowledge of his will, so it's only when we are in fellowship that we are uh, able to continue and maintain that walk by the Spirit and to learn the word so that it can become converted into that uh, full knowledge of his will. He says that this, though, has a secondary purpose, as I pointed out, that we can walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so, again, focusing on that growth, that we walk worthy. It's not just the knowledge isn't an end in itself, but so that we can walk worthy, and that that is done by being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So there's a there's an end result there that the apostle is emphasizing. We learn the word of God so that it can then in turn become a full spiritually usable knowledge within our soul, and then that becomes the basis for uh, using it when we face various circumstances and situations uh, in life, whatever those circumstances or situations may be, whether we're facing prosperity or whether we're facing adversity, whether you're dealing with personal difficulties and hardship, or whether you're just struggling against the 
fact that we live in a fallen world, we live in the devil's world, and often we have uh, many different uh, challenges that just come up on a daily basis, and it gives us the opportunity to trust God and to rely upon him as we face those things. But the end result is always towards performance. It's always how we think and how that determines what we do, what we say, and how we engage uh, the world around us. And that, as I pointed out last time, there uh, we go on in verse 11, we're strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for or towards the end of developing patience, that is endurance, and long-suffering with joy. As I pointed out last time, and I just want to reaffirm this, if you note in the New King James Version, which is the translation I have up here, there's a, a semicolon there after joy that the editors, uh, translators of the New King James and King James and a number of other translations see that as the end of the, of the, uh, uh, the, end of the, of the thought in the Greek, and that's correct. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible, you will see that they put that at the end of long-suffering, and they try to put connect joy to giving thanks in the next verse, in verse 12. But it truly belongs and should belong in verse 11. In verse 12, we read, Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now that translation is going to be, need to be um, clarified a little bit. And then notice in verse 13, and at verse 12 ends with a period in the translation, but it's, it's more of a semicolon. It's more of a pause. And then Paul just takes off on a related thought. He doesn't, uh, this, as I pointed out last time, it's an extremely long sentence going all the way down uh, to about verse uh, uh, 23 or so. And so we have to connect this. But he immediately shifts gears in verse 13 into what, uh, the Father has done. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So all of a sudden he starts talking about the kingdom and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of His Son. And so this then transfers us into a future orientation. As we'll see when I get into this and as we're uh, developing it on Tuesday nights in our Acts study, Whenever we hear the concept of kingdom in the New Testament, it always has something to do with the future literal reign of Jesus Christ on the earth that begins when he comes again at the end of the tribulation period, when he comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth. That's the kingdom there. The kingdom does not exist until that point. It is always the messianic kingdom. And... Uh, though there are those who teach that somehow we're in some form of a kingdom today based on a misunderstanding, misinterpretation of a number of things, we have to understand that New Testament concepts, whether we're talking about holiness or redemption or uh, salvation or whether we're talking about things like the kingdom, always have their foundation, their frame of reference in what God revealed previously in the Old Testament. And so when we go back to the Old Testament, we see that there's a prediction in the Old Testament that God will send a deliverer, a Messiah, who will come to Israel and who will deliver them from their sins and establish a future glorious kingdom, and he will rule from Jerusalem on the throne of David. 
This has not happened in history. It will happen in the future. Jesus came as the Messiah to offer the kingdom. It was rejected. They rejected his uh, claim to be the Messiah. They nailed him to the cross, and this is when God the Father poured out upon him uh, all of our sins so that he who knew no sin, the one who had never sinned, who was personally perfectly righteous in his humanity, could die on the cross as our substitute. And this is the connection that we see in these verses. There's going to be uh, a shift as Paul begins to focus on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is because of the the future of the kingdom, we'll see. This kingdom is future, but right now God is collecting those who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the future. So this is a future-oriented sense of the kingdom. It doesn't indicate that we're in the kingdom now. That would violate all of these other passages. We'll see on Tuesday night, you have to have three things to have a kingdom. You have to have a king. You have to have, uh, you have to have an, a domain over which he is ruling. And you have, the, have to have the activation of that rulership and that authority. And right now, Jesus Christ is not on his throne. Revelation 3, uh, 21 indicates that when he ascended to heaven, he sat on his father's throne, not on his throne. He is seated, according to Psalm 110.1, at the right hand of the father, awaiting uh, the, the, the giving of the kingdom from God, which prophecy states in Deuteron- I mean, in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 7, that, that the kingdom will be given, delegated, to the Son, to the Son of Man in that passage. And then it is when he comes again that he establishes that kingdom. So right now he's, we're in a waiting period, as we'll see. And this is related to, uh, this is, you can think of this in terms of a historical pattern as to what happened with David. When David was a, was a young boy, Saul, the king of Israel at that time, Saul had disobeyed God on numerous occasions to the point where God was going to finally bring judgment and discipline upon King Saul. Now, King Saul was a believer. King Saul is in heaven today. Uh, But at that time, he was an extremely rebellious, disobedient believer, and God took took the Holy Spirit from him. That can't happen today because we're living in a different era. But that Holy Spirit was given on a temporary basis to various leaders and rulers in Israel in the Old Testament to enable them to rule and to carry out God's God's plan for the nation. And so because of Saul's failure, the Holy Spirit was taken from him, but he was still king. And God sent Samuel the prophet to anoint David as king. But just because David was anointed as king didn't make him king. He wasn't given the kingdom yet. He wasn't on the throne yet. There was a uh, a hold between the anointing of the king and the giving of the kingdom. It was a number of years. It was maybe 15 years, 10 to 15 years, before David actually became the king. So what happened during those intervening years? Well, Saul heard that Samuel had anointed David, and so Saul, functioning in a pattern like Satan, began to persecute David. David, as the 
uh, anointed king. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, so he is a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. He's the anointed king, the Messiah king. And Saul is persecuting him. David has to go out into the desert, into all of the uh, barren regions of the southern part of Israel called the Negev and the uh, various uh, uh, desert regions in uh, the area of Judah. And Saul is persecuting him. And David gathers around him a number of people who are also being persecuted by Saul. And so they began to join themselves to David. And so David had a group that's referred to as the mighty, as his mighty men. He had a group of warriors. Now, when David became king, those who had gathered themselves to David during the time when he is being, was being persecuted by Saul uh, became part of his administration. They became the cadre of his kingdom. See, that's a perfect picture of what is happening now. We are in a period like David was in when the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been anointed, as it were, at the first advent, the first coming. But he doesn't become king until much later. And during this time, the church, called the body of Christ, remember, is being persecuted by Satan. And as it were, we're out in the wilderness. We're in a training time. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes in his kingdom, then we, like the uh, mighty men of David, uh, the outcasts of, uh, of, the, of the Judean kingdom at that time, of Saul's kingdom, we will become the cadre. We will be, become the ruling uh, team that rules and reigns with the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the focal point, why there is a shift here that occurs in verse 13, and uh, it really begins in verse 12 with the introduction of the concept of inheritance. Every time you see that word inheritance related to uh, the church, it always throws your focus forward to our inheritance in the kingdom when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. So see, what Paul does is he he's moving from the present tense mandate to walk worthy of the Lord to the reason, the motivation for this is because of what God is doing in our life today and preparing us and training us uh, for our future inheritance blessings when we will rule and reign uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I pointed out the last few times, we have uh, various purposes expressed by Paul's prayer. Primary purpose in verse 1, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. This is one of the unique factors of of uh, our church. Unfortunately, um, this was a uh, unique feature or the feature of many churches in past generations. But in this generation, we have seen a shift occur in many churches. There are still fine churches out there where the word is taught. But as I've seen many times over the years, I'll see people come to, oh, you're, you're teaching the Bible. And then they'll come and they'll listen and say, well... You know, I've been in Bible teaching churches before, and we sat around in a Bible teaching Sunday school class, and the Sunday school teacher asked each of us what we thought of the of the Bible, and and uh, that was, what, what, read this verse and tell us what you think about it. Well, nobody studied it, nobody knows anything about it, but they come up with their own ideas, or they sit around and they uh, hear somebody who uh, teaches a sermon, picks a verse, and uses that as a jumping off point 
to teach about his favorite little hobby horse and his favorite issue of the day, or whatever it might be, but it's not really exposing and explaining and developing the text of the Word of God so that we understand what the original author, and that would be both the human writer and the the Holy Spirit, intended to communicate uh, by his Word. And so uh, the priority that we see here in Scripture is that, first of all, if we're going to go anywhere in the spiritual life, we have to know something. We have to know the Word of God. That's the only way we can know His will. And from knowing his, the, getting the knowledge of His will, that epinosis knowledge, with spiritual wisdom and understanding, it leads to application. And so the first purpose is that you may be filled, but the secondary purpose of that is that you may walk worthy. Knowledge is towards a walk or a lifestyle uh, with the Lord. This third thing that Paul, uh, or the third uh, emphasis that Paul has in terms of the purpose of his prayer is he prays that they are strengthened with all might. Now, last time I didn't point this out, but that's really based on a Hebrew idiom. And in, in we're, some of you are familiar with this. You have a way of expressing uh, something emphatic in the, uh, in the Hebrew language where you'll double the verb. And so you'll use like a... Uh, uh, a normal in, in the Greek or in English it would be an indicative mood, and then it's joined with a with an infinitive, and uh, so, and it, it just means something is definitely true. It's a way of of emphasizing uh, the point. For example, when God told Adam in the garden that on the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you translate that literally, it would be dying you will die. But it, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, and I've done in-depth study of that in the past. And if you look at all the different ways in which that particular idiom is expressed, that's the only place where some people try to make it uh, mean two different things. It's always an emphatic statement, you will certainly or definitely die. And so this is, remember, Paul's uh, probably thinks in Hebrew, uh, that's his background, background's in-depth study of the Old Testament. So being strengthened with all might has the idea of the certainty of being uh, strengthened by God. You have, a, uh, you have the same, or the cognate verb and noun here uh, from dunamis and dunamao. So it is that you are certainly or emphatically strengthened according to, and then another Hebrew idiom, uh, some translations that translate the power of his glory, which is literal, but that exp- that expresses the idea that you have often in Hebrew, and it should be understood that glory is an adjective to power, his glorious power. It's God's omnipotence that is the source of our uh, of our power and strength. And then the last purpose is what we're focusing on today in verse 12, that you give thanks to the Father. Gratitude is, a, is an important part of the spiritual life because gratitude is related to the entire uh, concept of grace. In fact, you can hear it uh, in the English that in English uh, the word grace, that G-R-A, and the G-R-A in gratitude both come from the Latin word gratia, so grace is an action, the uh, giving of grace is an action that produces gratitude. Grace is something that is given without merit or it's undeserved. We don't do anything for the gift. Somebody just gives us something. And the response should be 
gratitude because we know we don't deserve that. We did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to get it. And so we should respond with, with gratitude. So gratitude and grace go hand in hand, and you can't have gratitude if you don't have a sense of humility. If you have a sense of entitlement, then somebody gives you something, and you just you might say, well, thank you, because you know that's polite, but that you don't have an attitude uh, reflecting thankfulness because there's a lack of humility there. You think you deserve it. Well, they did that for me because I'm such a nice person, or I've done many things for them in the past, so there's this uh, assumption there that uh, I really deserve this. And so that's uh, the opposite of humility. Humility, we recognize we don't deserve anything. Everything that we have in life uh, freely comes from God. We don't deserve any of the things that we have, uh, even if we work hard for it. I can tell you a lot of people I know who work a lot harder, a lot more consistently, and have a lot higher education than some other people, and they hardly have anything to show for it. Uh, it's not due to their fault or their lack of industriousness or anything else. There may be a lot of different reasons, but some people don't seem to do a whole lot, and yet they have great, seem to have great blessing, and uh, others seem to do a tremendous amount, and they don't seem to have a lot to show for it. And the issue has nothing to do with those results. The issues are often related to other things. But we don't, we have what we have because it's due to the grace of God, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot, and we, that's why we should be thankful for all things, the Scripture says, and in all things. Whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, what we have is due to the Lord's grace, not necessarily related to our uh, personal effort. So Paul comes to this, we come to this next verse, which is translated in a rather ambiguous manner, as is typical of most translations with the participle, giving thanks. It's really a, perp, a participle of purpose. In order that we give thanks, we are, Paul is praying for these different things, expressed in, in various ways, expressed purpose clauses, in order that we give thanks to the Father. And that is the main thought here that brings us to a little bit of a break as he uh, as he reaches this sort of pinnacle of his thinking in terms of what he is praying for in relation to the Colossian believers. So we should be praying for this as well for our own lives, that, that we would be thankful, that we would be truly humble, that we would be truly oriented to God's grace and truly thankful for all that he has given us. But there are many things and many ways that we can be thankful to God. If I were to give you time to take out a pen and paper and write down all the things that you're uh, thankful to God about, that would relate to a number of different things. But Paul focuses our attention here with this next phrase that we find. He uses a, a participle again. This time it's used with a noun. It has a sense of a relative clause, and it's uh, correctly translated, the father who has qualified us. But the sense of that relative phrase is not just saying something about what the Father has done, but this is the reason that we are to be thankful to God. It has that sense. We are thankful to God because he has qualified us, because he is the one who has uh, qualified us. And so we have to stop a second and just understand the sense of this. What does he mean by being qualified. And as I've seen this approaching for the last several weeks, I've taken a lot of time to sit and think. Sometimes people don't understand what a pastor does. Being a pastor is a cerebral job. 
Sometimes I sit there and I look at a, at a verse. I'll sketch it out on a piece of paper. I'll diagram it on the, on, on, on the computer. And I just sit there and stare at it for maybe an hour thinking about, well, how in the world does this relate to that or that relate to this, especially with some of these uh, very complicated uh, sentence structures that the Apostle Paul has. And then I'll go look at commentaries. And, for example, in this whole section, there's at least, I've identified at least four different ways that uh, good scholars and good exegetes and men very knowledgeable in the grammar have, tri- have attempted to structure uh, the flow of Paul's thought, uh, and they, di- they don't all agree with each other. The bottom line is pretty much the same, emphasizing certain things that should characterize a Christian's life in terms of, of gratitude and growth and fruitfulness, but just how this relates is a little bit ambiguous in the Greek, and so you can read into it some, read some different, a uh, little bit different structures that are there. Uh, some basic things are very clear, but some of the uh, other details can become a little bit, uh, a, a little bit ambiguous at times. And so you sit there and you think and you think, and and uh, and that's that's what pastors do a lot of times. I I know uh, I know some pastors who uh, I know one particular pastor who offices at home like I do, and his wife does not work, and. Um, when you're working, sometimes when I'm at home working, I'm working in between my ears, but I may go downstairs and wash the dishes or walk outside and water the pot, but my head is not anywhere near where I am, and this guy does the same thing. And he says all of a sudden his wife comes in and starts talking to him, and it just like it's jarring. It's like somebody just uh, broke, a, broke a, a, a china dish or somebody scraping their fingernails across a chalkboard and it just jerks you back into reality because your head is deeply immersed into working through a a problem like this and then next thing you know somebody's interrupting you they have no idea how deeply and profoundly you are at work you're just like a craftsman uh, doing maybe fine carving on something and you wouldn't want to interrupt somebody doing that but you're doing it in your head Uh, so it's a uh, uh, a lot of times that's that's what a pastor does. You have to think through a lot of different issues and a lot of different uh, different options. And this word is an, is an unusual word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. The other time it's used, it's not really used in a context that relates to this. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like, okay, how is Paul using What does he mean by this? And when he says that the Father qualified us for something, what sense is that? What he qualifies us for is to be sharers or to participate in this inheritance. Well, in what sense is this inheritance being discussed? As we'll see in a minute, there are two ways in which believers become heirs. One is an heir of God and another is an heir of Jesus Christ. So what's Paul really talking about here? What you have to do as you think this through is look at, at at surrounding context, but just work through things like, oh, he's he, okay. God has qualified us for this inheritance. Which inheritance is it? Is it one or the other, or is he just talking about both together? And in what sense has God qualified us? If it's a qualification for inheritance in relation to our sanctification, our spiritual life, the inheritance we have in Christ then that qualification would mean one thing. If it's a qualification in relationship to our 
being an heir of God, which is true for every believer, then that qualification would mean something else. And so you have to think through uh, the different options and then uh, what would that mean and what would that entail in terms of uh, if we choose option A, how does that relate to other scripture? If you choose option B, how does that relate to other scripture? And it looks, as I look at this, that we're talking about just a general statement here of inheritance that could include both because we have our common inheritance uh, being an heir of God is true for every believer, and our inheritance in terms of it being an heir of Christ is based on the same thing. It's a, The focus is different, but it's based on the same qualification, and that qualification is what occurs the instant we are saved. What qualifies us for anything from God? It is not what we do. It's never what we do. It is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's the basic qualification. We are all born as sinners, Scripture says, and everyone sins. Even people who don't believe in some sort of, of original sin from Adam have to admit that, that even if there's no original sin from Adam that's passed on to everybody, pretty much looks like everybody sins. So when Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, it is a clear reference to the fact that uh, everyone is under condemnation. Everyone has sinned. Scripture teaches that we are born guilty, though, because of the fact that we are descendants of Adam, and because of his sin, it changed the universe. And it changed things in such a way that it produced a corruption in the universe, and so that everyone born of Adam is born with the corruption of sin, and that sin problem has to be dealt with. The Old Testament's very clear on this, that, um, for example, Isaiah in Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our works of righteousness is all the best that we can do, giving large amounts of money, working in numerous service organizations, uh, doing things to help the poor, being involved in all of these different causes are very good. There's nothing wrong with that, but it cannot measure up to the absolute perfection of God, the absolute standard of his perfect righteousness. And that's why Isaiah says all of our works of righteousness are like filthy rags. They just don't cut it when it's compared to what God God demands. And uh, also Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 that all of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And so that, again, shows that all are rebellious. So how do we qualify if we can't even get to the starting gate? You can only qualify if someone else, someone else's credentials are applied to you. And those credentials are the credentials of Jesus Christ. He, Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us, and that is found in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter five, uh, verse twenty-one. The right, that the righteousness of God may be found in us. So, the instant any of us believed in Jesus, at that instant, God credits to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. We had a bank account that had a balance of minus minus a hundred trillion. It goes way beyond the national debt. You just can't recover from it. So what does God do? He puts, he puts a hundred quadrillion 
or whatever the number would be, into that account so that it not only erases the deficit, but it adds a positive balance, taking us to a, such a perfect number that we could never, never outspend the grace of God. We can never do anything uh, in terms of sin that somehow negates what Christ has done, uh, has done for us. So that's how we are qualified is that God gives us that perfect righteousness. But that doesn't make us righteous. It's just a legal standing. Uh, it was the Roman Catholic error to think that, that God made us ethically righteous so that we would do good deeds, and that, in, that tells us if we're saved or not. Uh, this is a legal declaration. This is what the Protestant uh, reformers recovered in the Protestant Reformation is that this imputation of righteousness. So God qualified us, and so it can be translated, he made us fit, he made us capable, he made us worthy of an inheritance. And now that this is really uh, poorly translated when it says he qualified us to be partakers. There's no be verb in here. In fact, what you have is a noun, uh, meris, here, which means a part or a portion and it's literally translated, uh, he qualified, uh, actually it qualified, uh, the text says us. If you're looking at a new American standard, it may say it qualified you, but he qualified us. And if you, there's a textual problem there, and the better reading is in the majority text, just in case you're, you're looking at new American standard or NIV, where uh, notice also he, you, you have to link this. The qualification, he qualified us to be partakers, He ha- and then in verse 13, he delivered us from the power of darkness. Those go together. It's clear that the pronoun, he delivered us, that uh, first-person plural pronoun in verse 13 has no textual variant, so it's better to understand this as us. He qualified us to uh, us for the purpose, it's a noun, clause, noun prepositional clause with the preposition ace indicating a purpose or a direction. He qualified us for the purpose of inheritance, for the purpose of a portion of the inheritance. He qualified us uh, so that we would receive a portion of this inheritance. So it literally would mean he qualified us uh, for the portion of inherit the inheritance of the saints in the light. And so the phrase saints in the light simply refers to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, as he will state uh, later on, uh, have been transferred from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, which is the kingdom of light. So this idea is we're given a portion of that inheritance that designates that, and then the word kleros indicates an inheritance. Now, I just want to do a quick review of the doctrine of inheritance. There's a lot that I can say about it. I've gone back and and combined a lot of the different notes that I've taught on inheritance, but I don't want to go through them in, in excessive detail this morning, but just hit some of the high high points in just, just a few points. First of all, when we see inherit, we have to understand what this means. We come to inheritance with this Western legal mentality that inherit has the idea of getting something when somebody dies. Uh, when somebody dies, the will is read, it designates a, an inheritance, and we receive an inheritance, but you only receive an inheritance when somebody dies. But that's not the main idea in either the Hebrew word or the Greek 
Greek word that's used here. It really has the main meaning of possession, property, or ownership. When Christ becomes the heir of all things, Hebrews 1, who died to give it to him? See, nobody died to give it to him. He becomes the owner by virtue of what he did on the cross. And so the emphasis there is on his ownership, on his legal rights to something. So that's the main idea there, uh, is possession, property, or ownership. Biblically speaking, property can be passed on with the death of a person, but that comes from the context. That's a secondary idea in the word. The primary idea is just possession, uh, property, or ownership. Uh, Hebrews 11.8, we're told, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place where he would receive, which he would receive as an inheritance. Nobody died to give the land that God promised to Abraham uh, to give it to him. There wasn't a death, and he didn't receive it because somebody died. It is a property possession that is given to him uh, by God. Hebrews 1.2, in these last days, uh, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. See, nobody died to transfer the property title to Jesus. So inheritance always has to do with ownership or property of something. When we read about inheritance in the Scripture, uh, most of the time it's related to rewards, not salvation. Rewards are something that are earned. Salvation is something that is freely given. We don't do anything to gain salvation, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. A reward is something that, on the other hand, is earned. It's not a free gift. So inheritance is related to rewards for what is earned for service, whereas salvation is a free gift. For example, Colossians 3.24 states that we know that from the Lord we will receive the reward of the inheritance. Inheritance is stated there as a reward for service. Third thing we've noted is that certain categories of people in the Old Testament, and we really have to go to the Old Testament to understand this whole concept of inheritance and possession, that's the frame of reference, that people lived in the land, but they didn't own the land. They didn't have a portion or property right in the land. So you, the, where this will make a difference is when we come to those passages that says if people commit certain sins, they won't inherit the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean getting into the kingdom. It means having certain property rights within the kingdom. So that if you are a believer who shows up at the judgment seat of Christ and you don't have any service, any Christian life growth on which to be rewarded, then that text says that everything, all your deeds are burned up, but you're saved. You still enter into heaven. You just don't have and you still enter the kingdom, you just don't have property rights. Well, in the Old Testament, there were people who lived in the land, the inheritance, the property of Israel, but they didn't own the land. They entered, but they didn't have possessions. So you have uh, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who lived in the land, but they didn't own the land. Numbers 18.20, there's a number of other verses I could go to, but in Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, who is the high priest, the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance uh, in the land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion. So uh, the Levites, the priests, had no ownership of land in Israel. God was their inheritance. So there's a distinct... Everybody inherit, as we'll see, there, there are verses that say all inherit God, 
but not all have ownership in the land. So there's going to be distinctions uh, in heaven, distinctions in the kingdom between those who have ownership rights, those who will, Christians today who will rule and reign with Christ, and those who through failure to grow and mature as believers will not have ownership rights, will not have rewards, but they will still be there and still enjoying uh, the blessings and the privileges of being there, but they don't have ruler and reigning rights because they have failed to grow spiritually in this life. Uh, the fourth point is that though not all have an inheritance in the land, all have God as their inheritance and possession. I indicated that in the previous point, Psalm 73 uh, 26 says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. There's the word for inheritance. It's, a sim- it's the Hebrew word that is similar to the word for share or portion of inheritance, meros in the Greek. Psalm 119.57, the Lord is my portion or my inheritance. I have promised to keep their, thy word. Psalm 142.5, I cried out to thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge, my portion, that is the share of my inheritance in the land of the living. Point number five, for the church age, Christ is given ownership of all things. He's the heir of all things, and as those who are believers in Christ who are in him, we share in that ownership as a joint heir in Christ. Now, how do we become a joint heir in Christ? Well, that becomes clear from Romans 8.17 when it's properly understood. Uh, Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heir, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. That's an, uh, a phrase that's set apart. It's an appositional phrase. Uh, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, you see how that's punctuated. The comma comes after Christ. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. They're linked together by the word and as if they're equal. So that, and this is what it appears like in English. The trouble is there's no punctuation in the Greek. You have to pick up the sense of this from the, from the language itself and sometimes from understanding theology and what's said in other verses. Uh, the punctuation is added by a translator who understand or interpreted the verse a certain way. I've used this example a lot. I'll keep using it. That way you'll remember it. You have a sentence. Woman without her Man is nothing. Now, if I gave you all a slip of paper with this on it and asked you to punctuate it, then uh, the, um, the women would probably put two commas in there. A woman, without her, man is nothing. The main thought there is that without woman, man is nothing. You guys, you just can't make it without women. See, that if you punctuate it that way, that's the main idea. Most of the men, though, would punctuate it this way. Woman, without her man, is nothing. So you just change that second comma, and instead of putting it behind her, you put it behind man, you change the whole thrust of the, of the statement, changes the whole meaning. And that's what's happened in Romans 8, 17, is if you have the comma after Christ, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ are the same thing. But if that's true, then look at that if clause, if we suffer with him. Now, are we heirs of God if we suffer with Christ? In other words, is salvation conditioned upon suffering with Jesus? I don't think it says that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and suffering with Jesus. 
Doesn't say that, does it? So it's real clear if your theology is right that that second joint heirship, that second statement being a joint heir with Christ, has to be a distinct heirship from the first heirship with its heirs of God. All believers are equally heirs of God, but only some believers are joint heirs with Christ, those who suffer with him. Now, what do we mean by suffering with him? Well, we mean basically learning to grow and mature in the Christian life, not going to the cross, but uh, we all suffer because we live in the devil's world. And, and so if we understand suffering in that sense, because we live in a hostile environment, we have to learn how to handle that hostile environment by the application of God's word, then we grow. But if we're not willing to handle the hostile environment by God's word, then we won't grow. And growth then becomes the basis for inheritance. We see this, a couple of verses to close things out, Christ is the heir of all things. How did he get to be that way? Well, seventh point is that Christ's inheritance is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. Hebrews 1.4 states, having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they. How did he do that? By accomplishing God's will for his life. How did he do that? That's the eighth point. Christ's character is his human, in his humanity was developed by learning obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus in his humanity had to grow up and mature just like we do. And he had to do it without sin. He had to do it without relying on himself, but by only relying upon uh, God. So we have a verse like Hebrews 2.10 that says, For it was fitting for him... Uh, for whom are all things and through whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory. So the hymn there refers to God the Father. It was fitting for God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect or to mature the author of their salvation. Who's the author of our salvation? It's Jesus. How did he mature? Through sufferings. So, so that's not talking about the cross. That's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ growing up in his humanity, having to deal with all the same issues in life that you and I have to deal with, and handling them on the basis of God's word. Hebrews 5.8 says, although he was a son, he learned obedience. That doesn't mean he was disobedient, but in his humanity he had to go through that same growth process of learning to obey God and to obey his word, and he did that through the things which he suffered. So when Romans 8 says that we become a joint heir with Christ if we suffer with him, that doesn't focus on the cross. That focuses on just growing up and maturing as a believer, facing the challenges and the details and adversities of life on the basis of God's word. And so it tells us that his spiritual growth qualified him for his inheritance. Psalm 2.8, uh, Hebrews 1.2 Psalm 2.8 says, ask, God says, ask of me, addressing Jesus as the Messiah, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. What qualified him for that was his obedience. What qualifies you for inheritance is that you grow up and you mature as a believer and that, that gets us that second category of inheritance. We're initially qualified. I used the word quali quality, qualify a minute ago and I shouldn't. Our initial qualification is the righteousness of Christ. That gets us the first category of inheritance, and we're all heirs of God. 
What gets us the second, second category of inheritance, being a joint heir with Christ, is when we mature, when we grow up, when we learn to walk worthy, which is what Paul is talking about uh, in terms of, of, of the prayer here in verse 10, that we may walk worthy of the Lord. And, what, and uh, the characteristics of that are to be filled with the knowledge of his will, to be strengthened with all might, and to give thanks to the Father. And we're giving thanks to him because he qualified us, uh, first case qualification through imputation of righteousness, second case qualification for uh, being a joint heir with Christ in terms of our spiritual growth. So God the Father does all the work. He either does it through all the work at the cross or he does it through, our, through the Holy Spirit who is the source of our power in the spiritual life. And then Paul is going to jump to, his mind is working so fast, he, he's talked about inheritance, and now he's got to connect that to the kingdom, and we'll get to that uh, next time when we look at verse 13, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect upon these things this morning, to be reminded of, of your grace, and that all that we have and all that we do is dependent upon your grace, what you've given us, what you've provided for us. You've given us everything at salvation, and you've given us everything for the spiritual life. And we're to, just as we depend upon you for everything for our justification, for our salvation, we depend upon you for everything for our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, as we walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do that. Maybe you're not sure of your salvation or sure of your eternal destiny, and this is your opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ had you in mind when he died on the cross. Every single human being was in his mind, and he paid the penalty for every single sin in human history so that all that is left for us to do is to simply trust in him, to believe in him, to believe that he died for us, and that by believing in him, we have eternal life, which can never be taken from us. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with all these things that we have studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.